0: Hey there, if you're listening to this and you support us on Patreon, you can hear it via the Patreon page and free. listening to sound opinions and this week we're doing a classic album dissection of germ free adolescence by x-ray specs and talking with polystyrene's daughter Celeste Bell who has a hand in this new documentary. I'm Jim DeRogatis. and I'm
1: Greg Cott. But first Jim and I have two new albums to review from Saba and Shamir. Hey 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 brace below poverty now I keep a sacred, geometry, I'm on my circle, I'm training for mayhem, but y'all I'm a triangle, cause I saw some music and change up, I'm my square like a plaintiff, be careful, they armed and they dangerous for diamonds, some music is spiraling, they want us in boxes but can't contain us, oh my god, I'm trying to move better, what's really eating when you from a food desert? I see the newsletters, can't listen to them, they be moving too careless, this album's confessions of a man moving quick, When did he regret it, once I make a band and get rich, 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 rich. That's a little bit of survivor's guilt from the new Saba album, "Few Good Things." Saba, born Taj Malik Chandler, proud son of Chicago's West Side. Uh, he's made his name not only as a rapper, a songwriter, producer, but uh, community activist and a voice for the oppressed in in Chicago. Chicago young authors, absolutely. Um, this is the follow up to his 2018 album, "Care For Me," which uh, you know we both highly regarded. I think I think it was one of the best albums of the year. Mm. Uh, This is only his third studio album, but he's been recording pretty steadily since 2012. Uh, Started out as a teenager, various mixtapes, compilations, uh, formed the pivot gang with his older brother and John Walt, his cousin, who died a few years ago, and Walt's death, that tragedy, uh, was the underlying uh, text for Care For Me, the, the previous studio album, essentially an extended eulogy. Uh, and appreciation of for his late collaborator yeah. and, and mentor in many ways. This record has been three years in the making. Uh, it's not that he's been resting on his laurels at all. He's uh, collaborated with just about everybody who's in the, uh, of, of any prominence in the Chicago hip-hop scene, Chance the Rapper, no-name Jamila Woods. Uh, guy plays keyboards, guitars, bass, drum programming on, on all of his records. And uh, cameos on this new record from... Uh, Black Thought, G Herbo, Crazy Bone of Bone Thugs and Harmony. Yep. An indication of how widely respected this guy is in the hip hop community. Here's a track from Few Good Things. It's called One Way on Sound Opinions.
2: Want the peace, but don't want to die. It's a one way street, though. It's a round trip when we fly. Never one way, one way. New crib by the seaside. On a one way street, though. It's a million ways to get by. One way, one
0: way. That is one way by Saba, Chicago rapper, and his new album "A Few Good Things." You know, it is in some ways uh, this album a a uh, encapsulation of everything that Chicago hip hop has been. And you know, I hear Common, I hear Lupe Fiasco, who was a mentor and an inspiration mm-hmm. to Saba. I hear Rhyme Fest with the sense of humor, right? And I hear Drill, right? Uh, Chief Keef. Kind of upended uh, with the drill movement. He was the most notable name, but it was a, a resurgence a couple of years ago of uh, of a much darker and more violent uh, sound and topics in the uh, raps. Um, so all of this is coming together by a guy who is uh, you know firmly an adult now, and you know looking at the complexities of life as a young black man in chicago he's a family man Mm -hmm. he wants to provide for his family uh but there is that allure of the filthy lucre always hanging over anybody in chicago uh you know he was offered a million dollars he says to sign to a label he didn't want to do that Mm -hmm. right nor did he want to resort to uh drug dealing and gang banging and the life of the streets but he talks about these things he talks about the pressures on him and the music is just absolutely incredible it really kind of spans all the different things chicago hip-hop has done as i said you know those those dusty grooves you know uh common pioneered them kanye made billions with them right and uh and the drill the harshness too it's it's all here this is what chicago black life sounds like in 2022 well you know saba is so respected in
1: in the community It, it can't be overstated uh, Care for me was a dark record. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, he was mourning the death of his friend, his cousin, um, and at the same time, um, you know, encapsulating a lot of what what it means to be a young black man in America, uh, Chicago specifically. This one has a bouncier feel to it. I mean, when you're just sort of listening, without really paying close attention to what's going on lyrically, you're thinking, "Wow, this is a really melodic, catchy, breezy." Type of record, it's easy to dance to. At points, uh, those those, those <laughs> yeah. refrains kind of stick in your um, in your in your head. You know, I find myself like you know, rich, rich, rich. You know, I'm saying, th- I'm thinking yeah. about these little hooks that he's got. There's sort of a, an inflection in his voice in the way he's using these sort of repetitive hooks um, to, to to you know plant little earworms, and at the same time. There's a depth to it, as you mentioned. He's wrestling with this whole idea of being famous, of starting to become famous, starting to become rich. Uh, survivor's guilt, you know, talking yeah. about the whole idea of leaving the community behind. A lot of you know famous people do that; they forget where they came from. You know, he's vowed, he's tied to this community in a big way, and, and, and vows never to leave. But at the same time, understanding um, that with with uh, increased wealth and fame, that are coming increased responsibilities. The whole idea about, about being a dad and soldier, you know, uh, about fatherhood, not letting your guard down so that you can be there for your kid. I hope the world learns the value the life of my unborn, yeah, because what I'm going to tell them when the time get here, I'm dying from asphyxiation from the weight of the world while I in the waiting room, waiting for the birth of my girl. I'm going to be a troop trying to lead a troop of my own. You know what they do to my home, that's why I bought this here Chrome, don't need an automatic, not Paul pad. but two guns, shot thought about it. We called a cabin like a rally, we drove it through the rain. And, and then in Fear Monger, I think he addresses a primal fear. That I notice about all people who grow up in poverty. You know, my dad grew up in, in in the middle of World War II as a refugee. You know, there's a lot of uh, grand grandparents and parents out there who were children of the Depression, yeah. and they never forget that. Yeah. And you always have this fear of running out of money. You know what right. happens. What happens when you know when, when the spigot goes off? Uh, you know, where am I?
2: Okay, every duck and dad. I know it's scared of going broke. I know if I fall back down. Ain't no one there to let me roll. Okay, and every dug and dad, I know take care of so and so. So ain't no option, option, option. You best go make
1: wood. So he's wrestling with some real life issues here, and again. Saba hasn't made a bad record yet, and this he just keeps getting better. He's, he's in I, his mid-20s. You
0: know, I've even seen comparisons to Kendrick Lamar for this one. Yeah. Uh, I was listening for a good week and then uh, started uh, seeing what other critics were saying, and, you know, I wouldn't i wouldn't disagree with that. He is a Midwestern take on what Kendrick Lamar is doing.
1: I, I think the only thing here is that, you know, he's not even more widely known than he already is. You know, he's yeah. not playing the game, the corporate game of selling his music. that turned
0: out a million. In terms so. of ability, he's, <laughs> yeah. uh, he's right there. That is a little bit of a song called Cisgender by Shamir from his seventh album, Heterosexuality. Greg, you and I first saw Shamir perform in 2015 at South by Southwest. We were blown away. We came back as big fans. He was a guest on the show performing live in our studio, Mm -hmm. episode 530 in uh, 2016. You know this young artist, Greg, grew up in Las Vegas, Nevada. Shamir Bailey um, tried all sorts of things. You you name it, and and he was into it. Uh, he was part of an indie pop duo in high school. He was playing country music. He was mm-hmm. uh, he was turning to Chicago house and classic seventies disco. He won the ear of Nick Sylvester, who had uh, been the founder of XL Records, and uh, came out with a debut that turned a lot of heads in 2015. The single, On the Regular, from the album Ratchet, really put him on the radar. Uh, his career at XL didn't last long. He, he calls uh, what he's been doing with all these indie recordings, uh, six uh, total, uh, this is the seventh, uh, an anti-career. And uh, I am using the correct pronouns. He prefers he and his, but he is gender non-binary. And that is a major topic of heterosexuality because he wasn't even sure he was going to make this album. He was tired of everyone in interviews talking about his sexuality. But now he's given us an entire album pretty much Mm -hmm. about that topic. Um, uh, When people say that he's uh, got an androgynous voice, he prefers Mm countertenor. The correct term. It's not feminine, he says. It's not masculine. It's a happy medium. And I think if the world was more like that, our problems would be gone. Thank you, Shamir. Let's play a track, and we'll come back and give our reviews. This is Gay Agenda. From Shamir's new album, The Seventh of His Career, Heterosexuality. You just stuck in the box that was made for-
1: That is gay agenda from the new Shamir record heterosexuality. I think one of the most exciting songwriters of the last decade, um, just the variety of stuff you you sort of mentioned that earlier, Jim, that uh, he, he's all over the map musically. yeah. And the whole thing being, you can't pin me down. If you think no. I'm this, I'm going to show you th- that. You in know, in I, every I element also, of his life, yeah. you cannot pin me down. Well, exactly. And 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 now he's sort of addressing gender in the same way. Don't put me in a box. Don't tell me you know, who I am. I don't belong in a box. And gay agenda pretty much spells that out. You're just stuck in the box that was made for me, and you're mad I got out and I'm living free. You know, he state, states it very explicitly. That song, Cisgender, that we just played a snippet of, blows me away. I think it may be the the crowning statement of his career so far. It sums up everything he's about and is almost like a cry of frustration, anger and celebration. This is who I am. I'm celebrating who I am. I'm not cisgender. I'm not binary, trans. I don't want to be a girl. I don't want to be a man. I'm just existing on this godforsaken land. And you can take it or leave it, or you can just stay back. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I mean, and the inflection in his voice, the uh, emotion that he puts into those final lines where the song just sort of builds and builds to that moment, it's really powerful, uh, really powerful stuff. And and the fact that he's being so uh, personal here, you know? He's gone to a place that I don't. I think he was reluctant to go to in the in in the past because, as you said, it keeps getting brought up in so many of his interviews. Now yeah. he wants to. St- you know, come out and say, "Hey, here's the final word on this." You know, this well, is who I am.
0: You know, I, I I heard an interview he did on NPR where he was complaining about that, and it clearly had upset him, and it reminded me of our interview where we were we were interested in the music, you know, and and, and it made sense. Um, he hugged us both. Yeah, I don't know about you. You don't like to be hugged. You're not. But I'm Italian. Everybody hugs. I disagree right? with that. I like <laughs> you, to be hugged. Like to be hu- and and well, I like being hugged by Shamir. And you know, he also we also saw him. I saw him at Pitchfork. My daughter
1: yeah and he hugged her too so he's a like hugger, you
0: know. but he seemed so overjoyed to have been with us in the studio that day um, uh, and I think it's because we were we were talking about what what he wanted to talk about music yeah. and and I don't care how you're living your life you're 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 free and you're creative there's a darkness on this album that you haven't touched upon um, a new influence for him uh, sort of the Trent Reznor nine-inch nails dark industrial
2: cause storms in the lady thing
0: situation and um you know he he suffers from uh bipolar disorder and there are moments where he talks about having considered uh, ending his life. And and we should say that is a trigger alert for people. There is help out there. I think uh, everybody knows that. Uh, suicide Hotlines. Um, this album is is him uh, self-caring and, and giving himself a lifeline uh, and saying, you know, I'm not going to be boxed in. I am free and I'm going to keep uh, making art in the face of. Any kind of darkness you can throw at me, you know. He has talked in the past about racial discrimination. He is talking here about gender discrimination, and uh, uh, there is a light at the end of this tunnel.
1: Yeah, and uh, you know, I I think that the fact that the journey continues. I mean, he's eight yeah. albums in. It feels like he's been here forever, but he hasn't. It's only been, you know, uh, less than a decade, and yeah. you know, he's still young. It's amazing what uh, what lies ahead for this artist. Those are our reviews of Saba and Shamir. I think two fascinating albums, two candidates for top ten, you know, <laughs> revisiting at it's, the end of the year, right?
0: We're, we're a couple of days into March. You're already thinking about well, that? Well, I
1: mean, when you, when you hear albums this good, you're just kind of thinking, okay, I'm going to file this one away for future reference, Two right? excellent albums. So let us know what you think about them. Share your thoughts in a voice message on our website, soundopinions.org, and we may be able to play it on the show. Coming up, we're going to do a classic album dissection of X-Ray Spex's Germ-Free Adolescence, one of the great debut albums of all time. Then we're going to talk with Polly Styrene's daughter about her new film on her mother's life. That's In A Minute on Sound Opinions.
2: Some people think little girls should be seen and not heard, but I think... Oh, bondage! Up yours! One, two, three, four!
0: Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. My partner is Greg Cott. If there is a more immortal uh, shouted introduction to any song in rock history, I think uh, uh, you're going to have a hard time naming it. X-Ray Specs, Polystyrene, chanting into the beginning of Oh Bondage Up Yours. Mm-hmm. The first single by X-Ray Specs. Um, we're going to talk about X-Ray Specs in this episode. Uh, you and I are going to set up the genius of their one and only album in their first incarnation germ free adolescence a uh, single came out in 76 The album came out in 78. Uh, They had five singles in that space in between. Most of the singles showed up on the album. But I will argue, and I have argued to, to you, that this is a perfect rock record. You know, if I had to choose 10, this would be one of them. That is just absolutely beginning to end perfect. But the story, of course, doesn't start there. It starts with Marion Joan Elliott being born in the U.K., Bromley Kent uh, to a English mom and a Somalian father. Marion Elliott didn't start out as polystyrene, Styrene, uh, but she always had music as a big part of her life. Uh, she'd recorded a reggae single as a kid, and, and it didn't take off.
2: And so I dropped some Billy on his way back home to Kingston.
0: Then one day she saw the Sex Pistols, (laughs) Mm -hmm. and it changed her life. She said, I can do that. I can do what Johnny Rotten, John Lydon is doing as a front person. And uh, you know, Marion Elliott becomes polystyrene, and uh, leads this band, writes all the songs, is an indelible personality, uh, a woman of color, a young woman still in braces, uh, who you know can't sing, but can't sing in one of the best ways in rock history. <laughs> it is a hundred percent attitude, exuberance, uh, a sense of humor. And sharp, sharp intelligence.
1: Yeah, that's the thing. The you know the intelligence, especially just a fully formed worldview on that one album that yeah. they made. You know, an incredible uh, sense of uh, looking beyond herself. Like, what what is driving humanity? What motivates us? Why do we feel inadequate? Why do we feel like we're not loved? Why do we feel that we're inferior because we're a woman or we're you know, a person of multiracial, color. right, you know. Um, those are really big questions and big issues that she addressed head-on in that record, and I think in a way that was fully formed. I mean, every song essentially has a, 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 an angle on that particular theme. It wasn't just a hodgepodge of songs. No. She had a worldview. She had something to say to the world about the way things worked. Um, I, I'm just struck to this day by the remarkable perspective that someone so young could have on you know the things that made us who we are well
0: and and prescient greg i think uh, this record that comes out in april 78 uh, or thereabouts, uh, is ahead of its time sure. still in 2022. You know, the feminist perspective of Oh, Bondage Up Yours often got uh, polystyrene uh, typecast as a, as a feminist, right? Right. She rejected all labels. Uh, but the theme is not so much feminism on germ-free adolescence as it is consumerism, uh, destroying right. this world. Um, you know, she is talking about how, uh, Evil it is to be defined uh, by what you can buy. Warrior in Woolworths, right? bag. I'm living off you. Um, you know, the second side of the record kicks off with a track called Genetic Engineering, mm-hmm. uh, which at that point was borderline science fiction in 78. And today is very much reality. Right. Uh, Polly is anti this consumerist garbage that is clogging and destroying the earth. And mm-hmm. uh, But it's always funny. You never feel like she's lecturing you.
1: Yeah, I, I think part of it, part of the appeal is just the sheer exuberance of it. I, I also think it needs to be said, I mean, she formed the band with Laurel Logic and yeah. then kicked her out. Um, but, you know, the, the, the saxophone continued to be an element, a key element in the sound. And I think not only was it presaging a lot of things from a, an idea standpoint, like Naomi Klein, you know, uh, No Logo. I yeah. mean, you know, th- this was that in, in a lot of ways, 30 years sooner, you know, 20 years sooner. Uh, but the, the, the punk um, jazz nexus, you know, the, this, yeah. this, this, this whole uh, art, arty scene that was bubbling under in New York City at the time was already being um, articulated.
0: By the music they made on this record, you know, free yeah. jazz meets punk. Well, yeah, right, ahead of its time musically as well as lyrically. Uh, Laura Logic was another teenager, and and you know, we learn in the documentary we're going to talk about in a bit that uh, Polly basically kicked her out of the band because there was only room for one uh, front person. Laura was getting too much attention. It went on to make a fine album uh, with a band that she called Essential Logic, um, but. Uh, You know, we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about how forward-looking a lot of this music was. I think Jack Airport, uh, a young man named Jack Stafford, um, was an incredibly inventive guitarist. And the perfect complement to uh, Polly Styrene, she would sketch out these songs. They would bring them to life, the band, with the saxophone. Uh, You know, not in a cheesy 50s saxophone way, but in a funhouse by the Stooges way. You know, Stafford, uh, tragically, isn't in the new film about Polly. He died of cancer in 2004. You know, went to work in corporate and public relations for the BBC. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Ironic, given how uh, incendiary and controversial all of those punk bands were. But after the Sex Pistols, X-Ray Specs was number two, right? Here's, you know, I don't like to live in the past, but if I had Mr. Uh, Peabody and Sherman's time machine, I would go <laughs> to April 77. The hundred days that this legendary English punk club was open, the Roxy, mm-hmm. um, you know, Oh uh, Bondage Up Yours by X Ray Specs is featured on the Live at the Roxy album. There was it recorded the night, get this triple bill Buzzcocks, Wire, and X Ray Specs. Hmm. A good seventy okay. percent of okay the rock ever since yeah. has come from those three bands, yeah. and they were all there at a club for a hundred people. Uh, you know, years right. ago. And
1: I, I think it's I, I think it's notable too that uh, a woman who was considered an outsider because of her um, you know her, her ethnicity, because of her gender, yeah. um, because she didn't look like a you know a young woman. She looked like a kid with braces. Right. I mean, all these things kind of stacked against her. Made one of the most timeless records of that era. I mean, it's it's one of those records where you go, this doesn't it doesn't feel like a period piece. No, this was made. Yesterday. A lot of UK punk can sound that way. This one does not. Um, you can play it today and go, this still sounds relevant.
0: One measure of a band uh, and, and its importance uh, far beyond how many records it sold in its lifetime. Although it's really interesting to see in in the new documentary, Polystyrene, I'm a Cliché. They were stars in the mm-hmm. UK. You know, they were unknown in the US uh, for the most part outside of the punk underground. But they they, they had their shot at pop stardom, which uh, freaked Polystyrene out and uh, pulls the plug on the band after, after like two and a half years, three years. But the measure, besides commercial, is you know how many bands they've inspired. Uh, I heard uh, X-Ray Specs cited a million times during the heyday of the Riot Girl movement mm-hmm. in the early '90s, uh, Bikini Kill, oh, yeah. and all the bands that followed. You know, I uh, I know that Kurt Cobain was a fan, uh, so was obviously Courtney Love. You know, where else do you hear it? Uh, you mentioned the No Wave connection with that. Well, saxophone. you know,
1: James Chance and the Contortions, Lydia Lunch. You know, oh, yeah. the eight, Eight-Eyed Spy. I mean, in, in some ways, those those bands were working in parallel. But I think you know, she was doing it in the UK New York City was doing its own thing it was inevitable that she would end up in New York City after A- x-ray specs uh, released its album and 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 sort of found common ground there but also was somewhat alienated by the by the whole experience of being in New York and ended up ending the band you know at, at that point you know one great album and to her credit never trying to follow it up it was kind of like okay i've do- i've said what i need to well, say well there in this was context, a, uh, right? there
0: was an x-ray specs reunion album uh, decades later right and and you know she made uh solo albums uh you know here's one of my favorite uh, polystyrene footnotes she appeared on love is the single by yeah. dream academy mm-hmm. when she was a harry krishna devotee and she right. was chanting uh the chorus there You know, I think one One thing you can say about her personally, and this is underscored in the documentary, is she devoted herself 100% to whatever her interests were at the time and the lifestyle was at the time. Uh, And that was as true of her becoming a Krishna uh, as it was of her becoming a punk. For some further insight into uh, polystyrene, the legacy, and the woman, uh, we could not do better than to talk to her daughter, Celeste Bell, one of the two filmmakers, along with Paul Sung, of Polystyrene I Am a Cliche. Since I first read about this movie, I have been so eager to see it. Celeste I will I will confess to you I don't know if Zoom will do justice I have your mom in the test tube
2: oh, as one of the wow.
0: one of the tattoos of my favorite albums of all time wow. um, I learned from your film that uh, she was angry that they uh, sort of slimmed her down yeah. to fit in the test tube on the album cover art <laughs> yeah. because polystyrene at the end of the day was not a cliche a very ironic title was 100% her own woman and a fascinating woman Tell me about the mission you had in in making this film.
2: I think I was motivated initially by when I discovered how prolific my mother was as a as a visual artist. People didn't know that she did all the artwork. You know, that included the logo, you know, she she drew that out. She styled the back, she styled herself. So my mother was kind of a, a Renaissance woman at that time. She was the the front person, but she was also behind the scenes sort of crafting the look and uh, the visual aspect of what X-Ray Specs was. So I think that was my initial motivation for, for what was the book project, because that was the beginning of right. really the book. And then, you know, I met Paul. And uh, it made sense to bring this story to to the big screen and, again, to be able to show off this artistic archive and make a very, like, colourful and visually interesting film. And then, of course, the story element, the biographical element, really developed and took on a life of its own.
0: It had to be uh, painful for you at times, because as well as I knew the story of polystyrene and X-ray specs, I got to interview your mom once when Generation Indigo came out, right? I was unaware the extent after she ended the band she walked away at the height of its success the mental challenges she had i mean everybody knows she was a harry krishna yeah a harry krishna you grew up on the george you know krishna estate <laughs> <laughs> um we knew that but i didn't realize what a struggle uh she had with manic depression yes i
2: mean she was diagnosed uh bipolar disorder in the early 90s but she had been misdiagnosed as schizophrenic in the late 70s, so basically at the height of the x spec period of success, she was uh, misdiagnosed with schizophrenia after a series of um, mental breakdowns, nervous breakdowns that she had. This became a, a lifelong struggle for her with mental illness. I think that being in X-Respect and also being Uh, in the public eye it did have a detrimental impact on on her mental well-being which is really unfortunate And it's something that we we explore in the film you know we want to actually highlight this I think often overlooked aspect of the music industry and, and how it can impact on the mental health of those involved. I was dealing with a lot and then to be given a label like that only to find out later that it wasn't and that they had got it wrong, it was really difficult.
1: Your mom had a huge impact with X-Ray Specs. It was a revolutionary band at the height of the punk era and then they imploded, as Jim said, she walked away. And you as a daughter of a person who was very famous for at least a short period of time in, in in england at the time when you came to her music what was the feeling that you had what did the music mean to you what kind of impact did it have on you personally when you first started to engage with what she was doing with x-ray specs
2: yeah so the first time i started listening to the x-ray specs music to my mom's music of that era was when i was about 15 years old because um i hadn't really heard much before then because my mother didn't really play her own music she didn't really like to listen to herself so I kind of got hold of the album and I just started listening to it you know I was impressed I think I kind of took for granted a lot in terms of my mum's you know musical background and I wasn't that interested to be honest and then listening to the album I was so surprised at how cool it was, even for me. Mm. And it became a, a favourite. You know, it's one of my favourite albums. It, I think it really resonated to me at that age um, because there is a lot of teenage energy to, to the album, youthful energy. So it, I really picked up on a lot, on a lot of the themes, because, of course, the themes that my mum was writing about in terms of consumerism and the sort of... Uh, kind of technologically advanced modern world that we're living in, we continue to live in and it's even intensified. My mother, my mother was really fascinated with those things and she explored in uh, germ adolescence, you know, and, and on various tracks like, you know, the day the world turned day-glow, genetic engineering. You know, at the time, I was thinking, my God, how prophetic, you know, in terms of the, the lyrics. And I think now, if you listen to it today in 2022 um you listen to a track like germ-free adolescence in light of the recent pandemic you're just like oh my god even i'm glad you mentioned
0: the title track because i think um one thing your mom never gets enough credit for is how wickedly funny she was Mm -hmm. you know i mean germ-free adolescence has one of the greatest pickup lines of all time i'd like to get to know you your deodorant smells nice I mean, it's very funny. You know, brushes her teeth ten times a day. Yeah. Wickedly funny, yet prescient, yet also uh, sharply political. The critique of what today we would call one of the greatest battles around the world whether it's the UK in England the 1% controlling so much of the wealth and um, you know just staunchly anti-consumerist at every turn, warrior in Woolworths, right? Did that come from her being raised as a a woman of mixed color, poverty and a tough upbringing do you think? I mean and you didn't have it much better, you struggled your whole life with dealing with like you know how do we pay the rent?
2: Yeah, my mother was really motivated to get out of poverty as well and you know she was entrepreneurial in terms of what she was doing she wanted to have success commercial success and and the material rewards from that. Unfortunately, those didn't last very long. I love
0: how you you don't make her one dimensional ever. You know, one of her favorite things was shopping. Yeah. You, say, <laughs> you know, as, as befits a fashion icon, a trendsetter. You know, and you're the kid being dragged. Ah, oh, mom, we're not going shopping again.
2: That's right. And of course, my mother was critical of consumerism in terms of the the impact it was having on on human beings and on, on, the, on the planet. But at the same time, of course, she was engaging in consumerism. It's impossible not to engage in it, you know, but you could still be critical. And, you know, my mother was a contradictory person for the complexities. Um, she, You couldn't pin her down to any particular political kind of position because she was uh, artistic and creative. And, and so she was always on the outside, just looking observing what was going on and saying to herself, isn't this strange? Isn't this wonderful? Isn't this bizarre? Isn't this perverse? Like little kind of uh, mirrors on society in, in her song.
1: I think punk is sometimes um, misunderstood as sort of being this narrow boys club, angry white boys, right? And it wasn't that at all, especially in England, the, the whole notion of um, a woman of color, half-caste, as she's described in the movie, which I guess is the English equivalent of biracial, you yeah. know, here. Black is beautiful. White is all right. You're a half-caste girl. Do you want to fight? Black girl carries her flick knife. Will she cut me up for being half white? The national front are after me. I'm infiltrating. Can't you see? But, you know, that the acceptance of women, the acceptance of people of color, that was revolutionary at the time. So you wonder, like, how does such a multifaceted woman find a home while she's finding a home with other outcasts, right? That that seemed to be clearly the, the whole impetus behind that movement. And I wonder how much of that sort of filtered down into the way that she led the rest of her life, because... I think she was still a teenager when X-Ray Specs was starting. And um, I'm just wondering how that carried over into the rest of her life, that sort of ethos.
2: I think it was integral to her um, you know, her character throughout her life. She was always an outsider and a very unhappy experience, you know, when she was a child, being an outsider. No child really wants to feel like that. And She was forced into that position because of her difference. She was othered in that sense. But I think as she became older, that, adversity again she was able to use and make it into an advantage of strength again if you can observe from an outsider position I think you can see things often with much more clarity and she continued to be like this throughout her life Um, you know even doing things that were unexpected Um, my mother was always uh, willing to take on that challenge you know she didn't have to be popular one, she she had to just follow her own path wherever that might
0: lead her. Celeste, if I have one disappointment with the movie, I wish there was a little more on the making of Germ-Free Adolescence, because I do think that four decades on, it stands as a perfect album, not a single misstep. I'm wondering what you learned about that. One of the things I, I love about the film is you make it how clear that X-Ray Specs was Polly's vision. Mm-hmm. You know, she names it, uh, she names herself, she designs the fashion the look uh the logos as you said the artwork that memorable cover she balks at the record company slimming her down for to put her in the test tube okay How did she assert herself in the studio during the making of that album? You know, Jack Airport died well before your mom, a fantastic guitarist, and we hear from Paul Dean, one of the members, but we don't hear much about the making of that album, and I just think it's it's such a landmark rock record.
1: All those songs are artificial, highly inflammable, genetic engineering. All these songs were kind of progression from the early stuff, which was about relationships and about herself.
2: The making of the album, it's, I don't know too much, to be honest. You know, I don't... There's not much out there. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's something, interestingly, you know, my mother never spoke that much about recording or, or... She did tell me a lot about gigs because they had a big impact on her, often negative. You know, she didn't really like performing sure. live. But I do know that she was quite excited to record Jennifer Adolescence in, you know, a very professional... Studio. You know, the, the album it was released uh by EMI. It was a major label. So there was there was actually money that went into making
0: the album. Well see, that's the thing, you know, the fact that EMI, villainized by the Sex Pistols, yeah. who were not very nice to your mom, put the money into this record, but yet it is still every note on that album is the band and your mom. They are clearly in control. And we were seeing as punk became new wave, we were seeing the music industry want to tame these instincts right nobody was taming polystyrene and that's what i think is an accomplishment that needs to be amplified
2: absolutely they did try to tone down some aspects of who she was to make her more palatable for example she actually started wearing braces because the record company said you need to straighten your teeth. I
0: never knew that. <laughs> of
2: course, having it she was very excited to to have a deal with a major label, you know, to be able to produce a very high quality album. That's what she wanted. But at the same time, of course, it comes with all these downsides. And and I think the biggest downside was that there was a you know, there was a publicity machine suddenly, and she was in the center of that. All the focus was on her. And it was very intrusive and often unkind, that type of attention that she had to suddenly contend with.
0: After a short break, we'll look at the effect all that attention had on polystyrene. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions. And we're back, and we're talking with Celeste Bell about her film *Polystyrene*. I am a cliche, uh, which features her mother, the leader of X-ray Specs.
1: One of the things that I'm curious about Celeste in the movie, the watershed moment of you know X-ray Specs going to New York and playing shows there, you know, um, CBGB. CBGB and all the fandom there, you know, the everybody, the who's who of the underground showing up at the shows and all this hubbub around the band. And I was wondering, because we get the sense that your mom has a nervous breakdown or she's mentally coming unglued. Uh, was she coming unglued and New York just happened to be the place where she did it? Or did New York prompt the, the breakdown? I mean, it, it's unclear exactly where you stand on that, but it seems like those two events definitely overlap. I think the consumerism side of New York and the advertising and the bright lights and the dazzling lights everywhere, that did destabilise Polly and affect the way she was writing songs.
2: My mother had told me that it was New York um, was when she had her first nervous breakdown. It was after she was given something to smoke at a party. And uh, that kind of triggered a psychotic episode. But I think the pressures and uh, the anxieties and problematic nature of being uh, the front woman of the band like, that X I think it was something that was building up. But New York was definitely a trigger. You know, my mother had been writing about various themes, but these were things she was sort of kind of imagining. And, you know, England at that time, London at that time, was you Know it was still quite old fashioned in comparison to New York, where New York was at. Um, so when my mother went to New York, you know, it's a very intense period playing CBGBs twice a night. You know, they had this residency mm-hmm. and being in New York City and seeing the things that she'd been writing about, but seeing them, um, for the first time in a way, I think she it kind of was uh, a bit of an Alice in Wonderland um, experience for her she felt probably for the first time that she, there was something prophetic in what she was writing and then and it, but it was concerning you know she was concerned about that. it wasn't something that she was just making up anymore or having fun with it was there was sort of a seriousness she grew up actually um, she was forced to, to grow up and it was everything became a little bit less fun after that
1: experience it's really interesting because so many other people would have reacted the opposite way like oh my god i'm finally being accepted and everybody's you know loves me and your mother had exactly the opposite response to the whole thing this is this is crass and ugly and dark and well she realized uh, yeah. she,
0: she had become a product which is something she was decrying i live off you well, and she was, you live off
1: me she walked the walk not just you know talking about it in her song she was like following through on it. So it was uh, quite incredible, but also made for a very rough experience. And then being a mom, raising a daughter, you know, must have been quite a challenge on the back of all that. Did you ever get a chance to talk to her about that period um, from the perspective of her trying to be a mother?
2: She spoke to me often about why she wanted to be, you know, she planned to have me. So I think having me at an early age, she was only 23. For her, it was, again, it was an escape in, in a sense from... From that craziness to maybe have something a bit real in her life and that was having a child and being a mother and again it was like a new identity for her that wasn't anything to do with polystyrene you know being a mother was something she was uh, very keen you know she was very maternal very maternal person it kind of also got her out of that rock and roll lifestyle that I think had become a bit too much for her you know in terms of drinking and smoking and all the drug taking that was going on around her being a, a rock star,
0: you know. There's, I think, one of the best passages I've ever seen describing how difficult the balancing of parenting and being an artistic personality are. You know, she would fall into her own world writing these beautiful poems. And then there's several of them quoted in the in the movie and uh, doing her artwork. And, and forget that you were there for like 6, 8, 10, 12 hours, you know, the baby in the corner. I think that's a challenge that that every creative person, women especially, because dad always gets a pass, right? <laughs> um, and there were many tough years where you resented her, but you came to a piece at the end.
2: What you want from your parents is for them to be stable and to be um, reliable and dependable. So I didn't really have necessarily have that that as a child. And that was very, very challenging. And then on top of that, she was creative and artistic, which meant that I often had to play second fiddle to her artistry, and that was also challenging, you know, feeling that I wasn't the centre of her world always. But the the positive um, side of that is that it forced me to be very independent from a very early age. You know, I was quite a fierce child, strong, opinionated, and resilient. So these are very, I think, are really great life skills to have. I'm not recommending kind of neglecting your children, So you, so you have stronger adults, but I think parents often beat themselves up a little bit too much about you know not not being absolutely perfect and not creating this absolutely perfect childhood for their children. When actually, perfect childhood doesn't necessarily make for a great adult life. It's important that children do experience some adversity, or at least are exposed to the fact that life isn't always pretty. As I became an adult, I understood that, yeah, it wasn't, you know, she wasn't necessarily the best mother at all times, but she was a, like a remarkable human being.
0: Well, and she raised an artist, yeah. an artist
2: yourself. <laughs> That's right, yeah.
1: It's interesting The Krishnas seemed to become the family that the punk was for your mother early on, and, and, and she this other alternative community became her home for it obviously had more staying power than than the punk thing did for her, right?
2: It did, because she was, you know, she continued to be a Hare Krishna until the end of her life, although she was not as immersed in the community later on. And Became, you know, a little bit a little bit less attached to it, I think, as she got older. But it was always an important
1: part of her life. X-ray specs did come together again near the end of your mother's life. I mean, she probably didn't know it was going to be the end of her life, but she, it was in the last few years that she was alive. How did she feel about that? Was that a vind- vindication type of event? Or how did she feel about the whole thing?
2: I think she was just really excited to you know, revisit that period and also revisit those great songs. I would say it was like a therapeutic process. She had found uh, performing live to be very stressful. So even though she was making music post X-Ray spec, she didn't actually perform properly. She performed a little bit with, with the Harry Krishnas, but apart from that, she didn't really perform public performing live on stage was very very challenging for my mother post x-ray specs and I think it was because of the traumas that she experienced when she was performing in the 70s mainly because those punk gigs those early punk gigs in the UK mainly it they were not very like nice places to play in and and, you know you had people spitting sitting on on stage, calling her all kinds of horrible names, swearing, jumping on the stage, pulling her at her clothes, all sorts of very inappropriate uh, behaviour because these kids had no boundaries whatsoever.
0: It was the gobbing, because I, I toured in 1987 with with Wire as their opening act, and they had shared many bills with your mom's band uh, at the Roxy, right? And they're on the live album that Mike Thorne made. You know, and, and Bruce Gilbert just, he was alternately happy not to be spit on all the time, but also upset. <laughs> Don't they like us? They're not spitting at me. <laughs> you know, he couldn't understand. Uh, and there, but there is that wonderful scene where you get to join her on stage for a bondage up yours at one of those later X-Ray specs performances which is just I mean there's no way to listen to that song and not be angry, happy, thrilled, excited. It just is one of those rare pieces of music that instantly pushes a button. Such a um,
2: you know a memorable and uh, like rewarding experience to be on stage with her, you know, and sing that song.
0: We have been talking to Celeste Bell, who directed Polystyrene. I am a cliche, along with Paul Sung. Thank you so much for taking some time for us, Celeste.
2: Thank you, James, and thank you, Greg.
0: That is it for our interview with Polystyrene's daughter, Celeste Bell. Now we want to hear from you. Was the music of X-Ray Specs significant in your life? Uh, I got a tattoo, Greg. I I love that album. It's it's one of my all-time favorites. You tell us your story on our website, soundopinions.org. We'd love to share it on the show. Mr. Cott, what do we have on the show next week?
1: Next week, Jim, very excited to have an in-depth interview with one of the great songwriters of our time, Lucy Dacus. And do not forget to check out our bonus podcast,
0: where this week I pay tribute to Gary Brooker of Procol Harum. Have the organ and the piano. Absolutely. Double-barreled action. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in this program belong solely to Sound Opinions and not necessarily to Columbia College Chicago or our sponsors. Thanks, as always, to our Patreon supporters. Sound Opinions is produced by Andrew Gill, Alex Claiborne, our associate producer Sol Delgadillo, and our intern Mary Bernthal. Our social media consultant is Katie Cott.